Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. As we turn to God's Word tonight, it's privilege to have Dr. Michael Rogers, whom many of you know. For those of you who are newer, Michael led our church for about a quarter of a century. We're thankful for his leadership, his preaching, and glad for him to be in the pulpit tonight. Don't give me too many false starts up and out of the chair, Chris, because I'm only good for a couple. It's good to greet you tonight and to have the subject of the cross of Christ before us. I was Gratified, there's no bragging involved, but I was gratified to be the one that had the idea for these services. Soon after I came here, I, I said, "Do you ever do anything special for Lent?" And they said, "Lent? That's a that's for Catholics." Uh, I don't think so. We don't major in smudges on your forehead or giving up donuts or things like that. But uh, we do think it's a valuable time to use the, some weeks to just concentrate ourselves upon the basic things of the Gospels. And I've seen people from our community coming to these services over the years and being reached for the Gospel. We're thankful for the opportunity. Be with us as you're able. You're going to hear different speakers from, mostly from our presbytery. I believe they all are. Well, tonight I'm going to read for you from 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, but I'm going to skip a part in the middle because the main thing I want you to see is the uh, thing that Paul is talking about as the power of preaching the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. Now skip down it with me, if you would. The part I really want to focus on tonight is the first couple verses of chapter 2. And Paul writes there, 2, 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in much weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. The 
grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Certainly one of the finest books you could buy if it was your interest to explore biblical doctrine about the subject of the death of Christ on Calvary, the book that you might want to get would be titled simply The Cross of Christ. It's an outstanding book written about 30 years ago by the late pastor-scholar John Stott of England. And Dr. Stott began the book in kind of a fetching way because I once had opportunity to tour the place where we'll be talking about here. I could picture it, and it was vivid to me to to have him describe taking tourists on a a little trip through St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I'm sure if I asked for a show of hands, I'd find folks who had been there. Suppose you are the individual given a private tour of St. Paul's huge, imposing cathedral, a building whose dome stands out from many places in London. You can see it almost from all over the city. Before you enter, you might pause on the front steps and your guide, Dr. Stott, would point you to a great dome that's over the church. And in the center of the dome is a a brass, I believe it's a brass cross atop the dome of the building visible from far off in London. Going inside, Dr. Stott might ask you to notice the floor plan of the sanctuary. The floor plan is a nave, a long, narrow room uh, intersected on two sides by what's called a transept. In other words, a side chamber at a 90-degree angle. And therefore, even the floor plan of the great church is cruciform or cross-shaped. If you descended to the basement, you'd probably be surprised to find not the usual church hall with tables ready for meals or something. What you really find is a cemetery where tombs of some of the greatest citizens of England are found there with many stone crosses marking their graves. Folks small and great, many of them Christian missionaries. Then if you came back to the first floor sanctuary again, You might notice the priest, the Episcopal priest who's ending a service is wearing a white vestment and has a gold cross embroidered upon his vestment. And then as the service ends, they have several a day uh, and folks are streaming to the exits, you might notice that, of course, many of the ladies in particular are wearing a gold chain around their neck with a small golden cross. Now, for purpose of my illustration tonight, use borrowing on this, I am going to assume that you, the one getting the tour, are a native. I tried to think of a country so far off. You're, you're a tourist from outer Mongolia. That's pretty far from London. And this is your first time in any country where Christianity is the dominant religion. And at this point, you're just a little confused, and you ask your guide, Sir... I know from ancient history that a wooden cross was the preferred instrument of torture and death by which the Roman army inflicted terror against its many enemies. So I'm puzzled about why such an item representing terrible cruelty and shameful death would be represented with such frequency at your most beautiful place of worship. Why a cross all over the place? And you know, when you think about it, that really is a good question. On the surface, for people not acquainted with our faith and its history and its doctrines, 
it does seem kind of bizarre that our faith is symbolized by an instrument of painful and rather barbaric death aimed to torture someone before extinguishing their life. Many of you can realize from, I was just watching a World War II movie the other night, and from, you realize from the tracing of Hitler's Germany, even if you weren't alive in that era, that Hitler made a way, he had experts in every department, I think, and he probably got somebody in what we would call the graphic arts department going quite early in the war before he invaded Poland and said, give me a flag that's noticeable from all angles and brightly colored, easily seen, and looking threatening. They came up with, of course, the crimson-colored flag with the thing that looks like a giant black spider in the middle of it, the swastika of Hitler's conquering armies, which struck the fear of death and terror into people all over Europe as it was used to mark the places where Hitler had taken control and was inflicting real pain on people all, all over the place. Well, how shall we answer the imaginary Mongolian tourist who thinks that overtones of the cross are a little bit too much like Hitler's flag? For in some folks' concept of symbolism, the Christianity's grand icon might as well almost be a hangman's noose. Or an electric chair. How'd you like that? We all wear little little golden electric chairs around our neck. Wouldn't that be strange? Well, we need to comprehend a short phrase that Paul, the supreme apostle of Christianity, is firmly declaring here in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where the apostle wrote to Corinthian believers, he had visited them in a prior time and now was writing to them, when I was with you on an earlier visit, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had a one-track mind as a minister to you when I was there, Paul is reminding them. The core topic, which he was sure they all needed to be reminded of and have it impressed in the best possible way, was the cross of Jesus Christ, crucified in the believer's place for redemption and eternal life. Now we began worship tonight by singing one of Isaac Watts' finest hymns in the book, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. Every once in a while, at least, I do stop and think about what I'm singing. And I was thinking about this wondrous Isn't that a little bit of a strange adjective? Once again, as a physical object, there's nothing wondrous about a cross, nothing about the specific cross, which was too heavy for him to carry all the way out to Calvary, as you recall. They had to enlist a fellow from the country to come and help bear the weight. Wondrous. Wondrous is the word chosen by Isaac Watts to describe the horrifying bloody instrument of death of Jesus of Nazareth one day long ago. That most decisive and, yes, in a manner of speaking, splendid event which occurred in all the past ages of human history. Well, Isaac Watts knew that Paul might have singled out other subjects to write about 
in this Corinthian letter. He might have come and said, now look, I, I was thinking about what I had time to teach you the last time, and I've got several subjects. I'll tick them off here. Uh, let's see. We need to talk about the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, we ought to talk about Jesus, the miracle worker and healer. We ought to talk about him as a king and victor over his enemy, Satan. And he could have gone on and named a number of topics and put a whole catalog out there of systematic theology. But when he did remind them, it wasn't of an old or a new subject. It was of an old subject that he had spoken about. And he thought, surely it needed reinforcing Jesus Christ and his cross. Now, crucifixion seems like a terrible subject. In New Testament times, every Roman citizen was informed that he or she was legally exempted from suffering death by crucifixion. This was Roman statute law. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. You might be guilty of multiple murders, all kinds of capital crimes. You would be punished in some way, but you would not be crucified if you held up your Roman citizenship for someone to be aware of it. Now, human beings don't like talking about death at all even under the best of circumstances, even when they have time to prepare for it. But death inflicted in a most grotesque manner, and I'm not going into that tonight, you can be assured. But I have, I remember vividly when I was 14, a, an Easter time preacher at my childhood church who described in agonizing terms, I think some faint-hearted folks left the room when he went through a whole description of what crucifixion does to a person's body. Terrible subject. Lasts for hours, unless you're very weak when you arrive at the crucifixion. Skin peeling off your body from a whip. Joints, out of joint, shoulders possibly out of joint, elbows, ankles. Legs broken from the strikes of instruments, clubs, swords. People stabbed bleeding all over. But here's where Paul is saying, I need to raise this subject. Because you need to understand that this subject of the particular crucifixion death of this particular person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, needs to be in your remembrance vividly so that you would remember what was done for you, for your benefit. And I need to tell you about it. And Paul was saying, even if you should fail to comprehend many other subjects that I didn't have time to teach then or now, this one thing you must know about and you must hold on to it for dear life. Now, Paul was a fine speaker and debater. We know that. He confounded many people with great educations. He had a great education. He was eloquent. He could counter-strike arguments that people would bring. The best people of the law within the Roman Empire came up against him and went away shaking their heads at this man's learning and, and understanding. And yet, Paul says, I feel weak and inadequate as a learned man or a gifted man when I see that God speaks in the way that he does by this amazing instrument of the cross of his son. He said, it seems like God was acting in weakness and disgrace. 
And yet a stroke of power from heaven saves people who trust in the wonderful news that God worked something absolutely unique by the flesh and blood death of his son Jesus, dying not only to himself and to this world, but dying in the place of guilty sinners. And that work of the cross, Paul said alone, is truly the power and plan of God to save human souls. Did you ever think about whether Jesus saw his life in ter- on earth in terms of a grand goal, something overwhelming that had, he had to conquer? Maybe think of a, one of the best sports stars out there and could throw a football like nobody else, and he thinks, man, I have a chance to be the very best with this great team. All right, I'll concede you the Eagles. Uh, this team behind me, I, I can't fail. And my grand dream is to be the best quarterback of all time. I, I'll t- tell you a real quick side story. Not long before I was called here in 1994, one day I was out having, having a breakfast by myself on Friday morning. It used to be my time to get organized for the weekend and the coming week. And I was sitting in a little diner on Baltimore Road in Towson, Maryland, and nobody else was there. I was the first person. I ordered my breakfast, started to work on things, and a man came in, a man somewhat older than myself, and uh, he sat down. We were in booths, and he was the third booth from me, not very far away, closer than the front of that first pew. And I was facing him. He was facing me. We might have sort of done, you know, the little nod you do, like, I acknowledge you're a stranger in this room, and I am too, and we don't know each other, so it's not necessary that we talk. Well, I saw the waitress come and take the man's order, and I realized he must be a familiar customer, but just the young lady seemed uh, quite familiar with him, the way she talked to him and so on, that this was somebody she knew. And at one point, she said, Johnny. And all of a sudden, I, I, I could have been hit by a major time electric shock because I knew of the old Baltimore Colts who made their home in Towson, Maryland, many of them, one of them in particular. And you got to be older to know this. You young people don't know the name of Johnny Unitas. But that's who was sitting 12 feet from me. Johnny Unitas, the best quarterback there ever was, at least before the modern era. And you know what? Do you think I had a great conversation with him? I, who can talk in front of hundreds of people, I couldn't open my mouth. (laughs) I was just frozen with the amazement that I was looking at Johnny Unitas. Amazing. And I thought, what is the grand goal? Has Johnny Unitas been able to say that he's lived the grand goal of his life with all the awards he has and all the plaudits of being one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Uh, I'll have to ask him in heaven. And and from what I know of the man, I believe he'll be there. But, uh, wow. Well, what was the grand goal of the life of Jesus? Was there something that when he, you know, ended his sleep every morning and got up and washed and had some breakfast and headed out with the disciples to do something, and he thought, here's the big goal that we're working on today, and i got to keep striving for this grand goal. Well, you know what the grand goal of Jesus' life was? 
to die. To die according to the plan that the Father had set out for him. It wasn't to be able to click off, I know I prayed the sinner's prayer with, you know, 300,000 people or something. No, it was to die. And people were going to oppose him in that goal, his own disciples. For one, his mother and his brothers, at least up to a point, opposed it. Jesus pursued his death on the cross as his lifetime goal. It was an assignment to be completed and a mountain that he knew he must climb and only he could climb it alone. A Roman philosopher, you probably heard the name of Cicero. Cicero wrote a lot. He firmly believed what I said a few minutes ago, that Roman citizens were too dignified to be touched by crucifixion, execution in that form. He knew that it involved whipping and hitting with clubs and all of that kind of, you know, terrible treatment of a prisoner, that the person's body would hang on a cross for hours if necessary or even days until death came. And Cicero wrote this one time. He said, the very word cross must be so far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. But I stop with him there and say, wait a minute, Mr. Cicero. In your first century optimism about how grand it is to be a Roman, the very words cross of Jesus, as a matter of fact, must be held in such sacred regard by every Christian who trusts in his name and in the grand plan executed of his life that it is more familiar to us and more dear to us than the name of a husband, a wife, a beloved child. What can lift a man or woman from the bottomless pit of sin and despair facing the eternal destiny of being separated from God? I praise God there is one thing. And somehow he led me by faith to comprehend the answer to the question that I put to you a little bit ago. What was the grand plan or grand goal of Jesus' life when I found out it was to die for sin? For me, the great understanding was someone had done that for me. I didn't have to do it. I remember the VBS teacher in summer Bible school, mother of a friend of mine, Mrs. Schwartz had bright red hair, china blue eyes. I never saw such a combination of red hair and blue eyes. She was a lovely lady. And she just explained to me simply in my eight-year-old understanding, Jesus died for you. You do not have to die for the sins you've already committed and accumulated as an eight-year-old. And wow, you may not think an eight-year-old could be that relieved, but I was. I really was. At the age of 12, Jesus told his parents and the scholars in the temple that he must, I quote, be about my father's business. Already he knew there was a goal. And that business involved wilderness temptation. So he went there and Satan revealed himself somehow to the mind and thoughts of Jesus and said, don't do it that way. That's a fool's way. Go this way. It'll be politically expedient. You'll gather big crowds. You'll make a million bucks a year. And, and I'll appoint you head of my army. And Jesus said, get away from me. I have nothing to do with you. 
In Mark 8, Jesus asked his close disciples, who are people saying that I am? And Peter blurted out, the Christ. And what do you think? Jesus said, hey, guys, I'm glad you finally got it. Let's get organized now. We can take over all of Israel and maybe even take on Rome. No, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I'm not who you think I am. And on multiple occasions, he had to tell admirers and enemies alike that he had a mission to perform that would only be fulfilled by his death. And that in God's appointed hour, not a day sooner or a day later. And in Gethsemane, you know, he wasn't writhing in in anguish in prayer because he was trying to think, how do I get out of this? No, he knew it was coming. He knew the men to arrest him were on the way soon, within the hour or two. And his only agony was, Father, keep me faithful all the way to the end. All the way when they drive those nails in my wrists or hands. Father, the Son of Man came not to serve or be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So the perspective of Jesus as far as completing his life ambition, his life goal, was not, well, I'm a helpless victim of evil forces. I can't help it one way or another. No, he was in control, amazingly, the whole way. You know, they thought they were in Rome. Good grief. One Roman soldier can take him out, they thought. Well, the whole troop didn't do a very good job. And uh, even though they nailed him to that cross, they did so with his already having confounded Pontius Pilate and made a fool of the Romans who were trying to make a fool of him. Beside the witness of Paul proclaiming that Jesus Christ and him crucified should be preached, there's so much more we could do if time allowed. But let me just mention that Peter finally got it. And he declared the same in his epistle, First Peter 118, he told those who would read his letter, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. It certainly shouldn't surprise any Christian to hear it declared that the cross of Jesus is wondrous in the songwriter's words. Amazing, glorious, all kinds of words that don't seem to fit something that's an ugly instrument of terror. And it's no wonder that religions that are merely of the devising of men can't get it. And they look at this Jesus and his cross and they utterly reject it. They say, what are you talking about? A major, Jesus is a major prophet. And to Islam, Jesus is called a prophet, a major prophet. They, they go a long ways with saying that. But Islam utterly rejects the idea that a major prophet could face a shameful death. And the Quran inserts, no soul can ever bear another's burden, so Jesus can't bear the sins of anybody else. So the Quran says, nope, doesn't take with our thoughts. In the early 20th century, an American missionary to Muslims in Arabia named Samuel Zwemer 
wrote these words, according to John Stott. Swimmer said, If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind of man, it is surely everything. The most profound reality and sublime mystery. Literally, this man wrote, All the wealth and glory of the gospel have their center here at the cross. Although the cross of Jesus remains an offense to millions, and we could go on and talk about Hinduism, I could give you a long quote from Mahatma Gandhi who tells you why he thinks the cross of Jesus is foolishness. It remains an offense to millions. Maybe it remains an offense to somebody here, for all I know. It certainly does offend many. But we who find its magnetic draw to be irresistible believe that at the cross we learn everything worth knowing about Jesus of Nazareth. A British preacher of the 20th century, early 20th century, named Peter Forsyth, gave a summary, which I will conclude upon that tonight. He said, I quote, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Jesus Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. So I repeat, Christ is to us just what his cross is, no more and no less. And I leave you with this tonight. What is his cross to you? Father, I pray perhaps this season when all the world, even in American customs, when there is hollow of any deep meaning, comes to sing happily on Easter morning, Christ the Lord is risen today. We cannot comprehend what it means for him to be risen if we do not see him sent to die and to die for us. Lord, attend us with your blessing Attend us with the depth of prayer and trust in this Savior, such as we may never have given him before. Teach us over and over that the cross of Jesus is all the wealth of what God has to teach us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.